Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy Collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Bridgerton, the official podcast, is a partnership between Shondaland Audio and iHeartRadio. There's a dance. Daphne comes down the stairs. Oh, yeah. She dances with Freddie, the prince. <gasps> and it's like this hand movement they have around each other. It's just like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm so thrilled by that moment. I love that. Yes. It's so I took funny. that from a statue. I took that from a Greek statue. And that's one of the ways I was trying to find, you know, the adoration of the woman. And the adoration of the man. <laughs> and then wouldn't you know, Will, our amazing production designer, I mean, second to none. Amen to that. Amen to that. Let me hear you say it. And he, what did he come up with? He came up with loads of statues. I, went, I mean, they're synergy for you. I mean, the statues were doing the same thing <laughs> as my people weren't dancing. And that was a fluke. That was a pure fluke, Gabrielle, I promise you. Welcome to Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm Gabrielle Collins. On this episode, we're talking about the balls as a window into how score and choreography on the show came together. We're talking with movement director Jack Murphy, who's going to share his view on the importance of Bridgerton's ball scenes. And we're also going to hear from Julianne Robinson. But first, we should put a spotlight on an element that makes each and every ball in Bridgerton distinct and special. And that, my dear friends, is the music. In order for us to talk about the music in this episode, we've got to talk to Shonda Rhimes. Shonda Rhimes and Shondaland shows are known for infusing television with transformative moments through music. Why? because music is another piece of the storytelling, babe. Like to me, the, the music has to provide the emotional impact without overtaking the content of a scene. Yep, that's Shonda. Everything should inherently feel like a new invention and we're trying something new. That's the point. That's what keeps us excited about doing our work. Whether I'm producing it or writing it myself, I want us to feel like we're growing in what we're doing. We're not just standing still. We've never made a show in England before. We've never made a show that felt this way musically before. It was just a lot of fun to do something that felt new and innovative. 
Shonda Land uses music to add levels to the fantasy, the aspiration, the romance. And Shonda will listen to a song over and over again while writing. Like, she'll get stuck on it. I mean, I think it's different for every show. And when it comes to score, I'm very much a person who knows what I like and I know what I don't like. But I cannot tell you why I know what I like and what I don't like. Which, make, which drives composers crazy. One of Shondaland's not-so-secret weapons is composer Chris Bowers. We spent some quality time with Chris Bowers to learn more about his work with Shondaland and all the Regency swag he infused his compositions with. Chris found love for the piano early on, but his start as a visual artist still impacts his musical decisions today. I'm a really visual person. My writing process, sometimes I'll even like sketch out a graphic representation, like a graphic score, or even just like a short little sketch that shows what this should feel like. Because sometimes it's nice to take things out of the context of um, of musical terms. Where else have you painted with music? <laughs> I think most recognizably probably either When They See Us with Avery DuVernay for Netflix or Green Book, the film with Mahershala Ali and Viggo Mortensen. Also, I work on a show called Dear White People and just did a film called Bad Hair as well. Yeah, Chris Bowers is lit. You know, fortunately, I had worked on For the People a few years ago. That that was a time where I felt most nervous about working on a Shondaland project and living up to, to those expectations, essentially. Shondaland shows us that they are really incredible at creating a sonic identity and then going deep with it. I just felt excited about how there were no limitations to how I wanted to approach it and that this was going to be a grand show, that they were really like pulling out all the stops when it came to way they were shooting it and the costume and like the locations and all this stuff. And so they wanted the music to, to rise to that level as well. And so for me, that, that felt like an exciting challenge. I just felt like I can um, push myself to write music that I don't get the opportunity to write very often. What was really wonderful for me was that Chris Bowers had a very clear, he had a very clear way of giving every scene or every person their own tune in a way. And it just worked. It was very early on in the process of, of working on the edits that I could see that, that it was going to work beautifully. Like there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of back and forth that this isn't working for me. He's a really talented. And he was managing to catch things that I just, I thought were amazing. He's just, he was good. I was just saying, I love this. This needs to do more. So the first scenes they shared with me were the ball scenes. And I think that was a really interesting way to be introduced to this world. It really showed me the grandness that we were able to play with with the score. I think that initially, before when I was just reading it, you're never really sure how big of a scope it's going to feel. And that really can affect the score because something that feels much more intimate, you want to write intimate sounding music, like fewer musicians or things like that. But with this, we were able to play with the scale because you have intimate moments between these characters and these love stories. But then at the same time, the grandness of these balls and these events and the landscape and these big houses and all these different things allowed us to write these huge orchestral pieces, which you don't really get the opportunity to do for for TV very often. Once we got to post, one of the big questions was, how modern do you make the music? 
That's executive producer Betsy Beers. Betsy is known for bringing together all of the many, many moving parts of Shondaland's creations. It's something which Shonda and I've debated with back and forth over the years. And I think what we all came to the conclusion was we wanted to make sure, like every other part of this, that there's never anything that takes you out of the story, but that you want to remember that there's modernity to the story. So the genius Chris Bowers, who composed the score, if you listen to the score, yeah, it's got a traditional feel to it, but it has these very sort of subversive elements throughout that pop up at points and whether you're totally aware of it or not, kind of make you realize, oh no, 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 this 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 isn't a frumpy, dusty Regency show. This has a little more pop to it. When we first see Daphne and Simon come on to the dance floor after they've made this agreement, it's this huge, huge piece, definitely the most ambitious piece that I wrote for the season, but it uh, encapsulates all these different themes, like Daphne's theme and also their theme together. We can pretend to form an attachment. You never really know how that's going to work until you get into the nitty gritty and try it. When you described that, I just thought about shock and delight. That's one of my favorite ones. And oh, yeah. that, that for me oh, really, yeah. I think, encapsulates what you're saying, too. Actually, do you have a favorite piece? I think that um, shock and delight is definitely one of my favorite favorite pieces. What Women Do mm. Best is another favorite of mine. I think I just had a lot of fun. That was one that was a big challenge. And I had wrote maybe five or six different attempts. And the last attempt was one of those moments where I was like, I'm just going to try something kind of crazy or, or really go for it, essentially. Tell us how you approached your work after you first saw those, you know, first images. I started writing music really early in the process. They were still shooting and, and we had this time to play around and try these different options and have this sandbox period. And the thing that really unlocked it for me personally was Simon and Daphne's piano theme. So, you know, Chris asked me to write that theme for them to shoot to. So they needed it really early in the process. And he sent me some pieces that were bits of inspiration for him. And a lot of those pieces were Ravel piano pieces and um, a couple of other pieces that felt really impressionistic and, you know, era wise, maybe it's not specifically 1813, but it's definitely something that feels older than, than now, of course. But the biggest thing I think is just how much romance you can feel in the sound of that music and that style of music. And that's really what started to unlock this feeling of a little bit of modernity and something that felt 
for me, I think uh, really impressionistic and, and wispy or, or um, very, or you think about impressionistic painting, for example, you look at like, it looks like a scene that's recognizable. Like you can tell that's a park or a lake or a pond, but it's all been a little, a little washy and a little um, dreamy. You know, I think that's a good word for it is dreamy. So Chris, we see musicians throughout the different corners of the ballroom scenes. We're doing bird's eye views. We're in close quarters and you are capturing all of that space in your score. How did those scenes influence your approach? Yeah, I, I noticed that Chris, whenever he would pan to a certain instrument being performed, he would always want that instrument to speak a little bit more. So if we saw a harpist playing or if we saw a violinist playing something at a certain moment, we wanted to bring that out in the piece itself. But then other than that, we didn't really use the instrumentation of the band that we're seeing as the basis of the instrumentation. Um, you know, I think most of those ensembles were pretty small and we wanted the balls to feel really grand. And so the score is actually much larger than whatever band is actually playing there, but we would always highlight whatever instrument he would maybe pan to, except for a little bit later, like when they go to the opera, for example, we wanted that to feel specifically like this might be the orchestra playing this piece while everybody's walking in or something like that. And although it's mixed a little bit more like score and it doesn't sound like it's coming from that space, the instrumentation is written a little bit differently. So it feels like it's uh, in that space or uh, like the brothel type area or, you know, any of those types of spaces, we wanted it to feel a little bit more like this could be uh, a, a band that's playing in this space. And so let's have it be a little bit smaller, pick some different instruments that maybe feel like could have been of that time. Here's creator Chris Van Dusen. We always joked that there were no dating apps, obviously, but the men and women at these balls were still swiping left and right until the early morning hours. Finding those modern references was really fun for us. Among the modern references in Bridgerton, we couldn't possibly miss the pop covers. Did we not collectively just stop when we heard the first trills of Ariana Grande's Thank You Next play? I know we did. We all did. The most important thing was you could watch this and feel like you could be part of this world and it was immediate to you. If we don't do that, I don't think we fully do our job. Betsy has so many amazing qualities. One thing is her ear for music. We really came to the music during post-production. Once we had all of the episodes shot and we were really looking at the series as a whole, we wanted to try a number of different things. We tried Strictly Classical at one point, Strictly Modern at another point, and what we landed on were, especially for you know these larger set pieces and, and these really important moments were classical reinterpretations of modern day pop songs. And that was something that Betsy and I both fell in love with when we heard them play against these scenes. It ends up being both this strange sort of subconscious feeling of, wow, I've heard that song before, but it didn't sound like that. And a little fun Easter egg for the fans and the viewers so that when they listen to this, they say, wait, wait, whoa, 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 what the hell is that song? 
I wanted whoever's watching to feel the same way that the characters they, themselves felt on screen. So, for example, when Daphne Bridgerton is is walking into a ballroom and she hears this classical rendition of Ariana Grande's Thank You Next, and she's filled with so much yes. energy and spirit. I wanted that same energy to translate to the viewer. I, I wanted, when you're hearing this amazing song and you get excited, that's exactly how Daphne would have felt at that moment. And I think that these modern day pop songs, because you recognize them and it's fun and it's, it's energetic and it's spirited. And I think that's the show. Chris worked with longtime Shondaland music supervisor Alex Patsavis. And again, if we're talking about music and we're talking about Shondaland, we cannot go forward without talking about Alex Patsavis. Alex is the catalyst of the Vitamin String Quartet pop covers that are making up our high tea playlists. She's a three-time Grammy nominee known for her crazy juxtaposition of sound and image. She can lay a track in a TV show. And she's also done films. Twilight is one of them. I mean, she gave us those ugly cry moments in Grey's Anatomy. And she gave us the sound of the 1813 dating scene, which is stirred up with the string covers that we're talking about. She's just been a legend for such a long time. And, and that's exactly why she just knows how to, you know, take the right angle with the show and with the music that she picks for it. So she had started placing a lot of the vitamin string quartet pieces throughout the season. And, and they're really like uh, one of the best groups at covering these pop songs in a classical way, in a way that, that I as a musician can listen to and, and feel like, oh, wow, that orchestration is really good, or these players are really good, and really be impressed by the musicality of it. But then at the same time, somebody that's not a musician can can listen to it and say, oh, I know that song, and really know, they can hear the entire song within, with just these four musicians playing. And so Alex Potsavis picking those cues, I think, was not only influential of the way that I approached the score, but it really just with each of those spots made us feel the way the characters feel, I think. What is so interesting is that nobody heard any of this music while filming. The actors, dancers, extras, crew. What I loved about watching the show on Christmas Day with everyone else. Here's Annabelle Hood. Is hearing the music for the first time, those now famous violin covers of, you know, Ariana Grande and such is that we didn't have that while we were filming. We they were, they were different songs, so they were dancing to different tracks. But they were still modern and they were still upbeat. But you hear the song so many times over and over again uh, that you think, oh, God, I hope I never hear this song again. And then you think, oh, no, I'm going to hear this song when, they, uh, when the show comes out. And then when the show came out and it was that incredible violin covers for some of the balls, I, I was blown away. That was one of the things where it was really special that I didn't know that that's what that was. I, I have to say... I inspired Mr. Chris Bowers, I think. <laughs> oh, no, no, I was kidding. I was kidding. I was kidding. <laughs> That's Jack Murphy, the movement director on Bridgerton. Yeah, Jack's one of my favorite people <laughs> from the crew. <laughs> Jack took just as many liberties in the dance numbers as the soundtrack to show off the dating scene of the Regency era. We'll find out what music the actors and dancers were originally waltzing to, and Jack will explain all of that later. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. 
Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Welcome back. Hi again, it's me, Annabelle. I'm a terrible dancer. I There was a point where Jack uh, Murphy, our choreographer, was trying to teach a few of us, Chris, me, Amy Mack, the script supervisor, how to dance. I'm a terrible dancer. I have two left feet. Um, So whenever there was a ball scene and I'd see the dancers and they had obviously been rehearsing and the cast had been rehearsing over and over again, I just thought it was magical because... It was something I could never, ever do. And Jack tried very hard to try and teach us how to dance, and we're not very good. (laughs) I can't imagine how grueling it must have been for the introverts, you know, to be pressed up on so many people so many nights a week. I mean, those dances were literally 20 to 30 minute physical endeavors. It's where suitors made their first moves. Yeah. You know, the young misses put their bosoms forward. Yeah. (laughs) Which makes me think about something that Hannah said about the marriage market and dancing. Often we lose the sense of how incredibly seductive the dance floor is at the time and just the chemistry and the electricity of that close physical contact because people didn't have much body contact when you're in the marriage market. You might take a man's hand to get in and out of a carriage, but dancing is basically almost full body contact and particularly in Regency times when we have the waltz, which is, you know, body against body. If you do two dances or three dances, that's half an hour altogether of 
absolutely electric, flirtatious, you know, hot chemistry and body contact. It's incredibly exciting and romantic and erotic. So the ballroom scenes are really important. The ballroom is a living, breathing fixture of the show's major themes and events. And so is the act of presenting oneself to society. The movement involved in all of this has cultural and historical roots. For example, when Daphne presents to the Queen, she has to reverence. That became my responsibility because of the wonderful work of Julianne Robinson and Chris involving me. So we looked with Daphne at how you reverence. Jack Murphy is known for his work in British theatre and his sweet spot, the classics. What is it to revere your head of state, your queen? And of course, then you've got the fantastic contrast to the Featherington. So your polaric differences, polaric distances apart. But I have to tell you, episode one, I found glorious. I was, oh, I was on my breath with her, our wonderful Daphne, because of her inner turmoil that's going on. Does she believe in this whole setup? Does she believe in all these protocols, these rules and regulations? But at the same time, she's realising them and she's not wanting to give too much away because of the complexity of that character, which is just fabulous for such a young woman to play. So I was thrilled to be there on set filming the movement of the reverence, the presentation, the Debs coming out to the Queen, because I think it's paramount that physically it's right because just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And by that, I mean the movement direction, the direction I gave to lovely Phoebe, who took it so well. And Phoebe, you know, she has this facility that she can be very, very serious, but she can be very witty and very cheeky. And she found the balance in that reverence. Jack, let's go back to the beginning. Why don't you tell us how you got involved with Bridgerton? I was in Spain. I went to Spain with the scripts and I sat on a balcony and the sun was shining and I read those scripts. And of course, it's set in 1813 summer and it was just absolutely delightful. But I'm very pleased I was in Spain because I had to go and have very long walks on the beach because it wasn't very long before I realised that this was going to be possibly the job of my life because the involvement of a moving person, a character was evident from every single scene, whether there was a ball, a dance or not. There were many moments like this that were going to become my responsibility if given that opportunity, because it doesn't always happen. I knew that it would need the stars to align for me to actually realise this job. It's just consummate for a, it's a consummate job for a movement director, choreographer like myself. Tell us how you met Chris. So I first met Chris Van Dusen on the page and I found myself chuckling because, you know, I was the assistant choreographer on the very famous BBC production of Pride and Prejudice. And what I didn't read back then was this dude walks into the room and, you know, checks out this chick. Well, I found the stage directions on Bridgerton so refreshing, so honest, so now, so fabulously, fabulously witty that I can have... I, they had me at the stage directions before I even read the dialogue. And that's all Chris, you know. I just thought, you know, he's debunked so much about the myth. You know, it's 200 years. And, you know, yeah, we can read the books and everything. So that's how I first met Chris. Okay. Okay. So the first time you met in person? The first time I met Chris in the flesh 
was at the Bloomsbury Hotel at my second interview. I mean, and I knew from his handshake that I liked him. Because I don't know about you, a handshake is, again, you know, an action. You are making a connection and you're making an engagement and you're investing your energy into the other person. And when Chris shakes your hand, it's genuine. Mm. So after this handshake, how did you all come together to map out the movement of Bridgerton, like the shape of Bridgerton? Working on a script of this wit, the wit that Chris has developed and realized with his team, is really the starting point for finding the style of our world. And the first and foremost, Julia Quinn, that comes from her imagination, everything she invested into that book. So subliminally, the world, the fantastical world, starts with the day that Julia Quinn sat at her desk with a blank page and then started to write. That's when the investment starts. So it's a realisation of her imagination, it's a realization of Chris's imagination. So there are really two filters. And then the third filter is, of course, the history. What can and can't you do in 1813? How do you correctly, for example, if I wanted to do a, a dance with you, Gabrielle, how would I ask you to dance? So the etiquette. So the dances tell us very much how to, because in order to ask a lady to dance, that informs me that outside of the ball, my approach to certain ladies is not permissible. So when I am allowed, when I am allowed to do something like, would you like the pleasure of this dance? I have to follow certain protocols. So that becomes the real world of the Regency. And then the fantasy, I have to say, is the fact that that is so far removed from our own world. Mm, and what rules did you bend and why? You know, I didn't know a great deal about these novels. And then when I researched them, I realized how many languages they've been translated into. And then I realized, oh my word, an awful lot of people going to watch Bridgerton, they speak another language or English is their second language. So that gave me a lot of inspiration to get a little bit naughty, a little bit saucy with some of the steps I used. How did I, how did I deviate from the historical to the fantasy. Well, that's what, you know, wouldn't it be lovely if you could touch, you know, how can you break the rules? Well, you're not allowed to touch their face. I mean, the fact is you're only, uh, there's very little you're allowed to touch. So it's this gesture. So I was playing with gesture and the idea that instead of touching the face, I, I can take behind because the statue is allowing me to do so. And the inspiration comes from the classical, from the Greek. So um, but that's where I broke the rules. I broke, and I was happy to break rules. I mean, I, I broke rules in the dancing, you know, with, uh, with steps. And uh, I want to, if I may, lay a challenge right here and now for our wonderful, wonderful uh, viewers in Brazil. There are two dances at the Trowbridge Ball, and there are two rhythms that they are dancing that are not... <laughs> Regency. <laughs> it's so naughty. So I kept the form of the Regency dances, but I changed the rhythms. And those rhythms, my dear friends, my our fans, our fans in Brazil will know what those rhythms are. There's a cha-cha-cha and a samba. <laughs> Wait, what? Because, because, listen, <laughs> listen, 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 listen. 
in in either a jig or a real step, you have a triple step. Okay. But in a cha-cha, you have a triple step. It's called a chasse, cyclo-side, which is exactly the same as a, a skip change of step in a reel or a jig. The only thing is, my my cha-cha was done to originally, so before the amazing, incomparable Chris Bowers got his hands on it and his uh, genius on it. I did it to blur blurred lines without lyrics, so not to offend and anybody. Action. And action. You were all dancing to music like Stormzy. <laughs> Can you explain that? Absolutely. So I choreographed all of the dances to modern music, having originally choreographed them to Regency music. Chris said, Let's use music that has soul and energy, but still allows you to realize the world historically, but finding the polaric with the fantasy. So I used Rihanna. I used lots and lots and lots of fantastic soul music. I used Stormzy. I used Pink. We danced to Pink. <laughs> and this is how it went. I would find a link, send it to Chris and say, here's five tracks that I think are suitable for this ball. Chris would come back and say, I like three of them, find me two more. I would go and find another two, going back and said, like them, choreograph them. So I did the job twice. So I did it to Regency and then applied the Regency to the modern and then gave it the twist. After the break, we'll hear how directors Tom Verica and Julianne Robinson can make magic on screen. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. 
Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Welcome back to Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm Gabby, and we had a chance to hear from movement director Jack Murphy and composer Chris Bowers about marrying the dance moves with the score. Let's turn now to director Julianne Robinson. I've thought of a decision that I made that I'm really proud of. Robinson is a British television director. Uh, She's worked on Masters of Sex, Nurse Jackie, Orange is the New Black, and she co-produced The Catch for Shondaland. Julie's been with Shondaland for some 15 years now, and she directed episode one and six of Bridgerton. Okay, at the assembly rooms, we were looking at the key room where we were going to do this big ballroom sequence. And I was looking at the chandeliers, and we were told the chandeliers were worth five million pounds each. Each. I think one of them was worth even more than that. And I heard that they were on a pulley system. So I spoke to Jeff Jur and I said, wouldn't it be great if we lowered the chandeliers so that they're almost just above the heads of the dancers and so that those chandeliers, which are worth so much money, will be in every shot of the ballroom scene. We lowered the chandeliers significantly. That's scary. What's scary about that is we had a technocrane in the room and the technocrane <laughs> is... Um, a huge arm that could kind of sweep past the chandeliers. And there were a couple of moments where Jeff Jer, wonderful crane operator, Jeff would be operating the crane himself, but it would get so close to the chandelier. (laughs) I would think, oh, it's five million pounds worth of chandeliers. No, (laughs) no, 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 no. (laughs) Oh, so you were just holding your breath. I was. There was a couple of moments where I was holding my breath. There was very long lectures from people about how we cannot swing that crane anywhere near the chandeliers because the chandeliers are so, so expensive. They're from the time period, I believe. It's hard to describe how dense and woven every decision is. I think a decision that I'm very proud of was how we were to go about shooting the ballroom sequence um, in episode one key decision that Jeff Jer and I made together was to spend most of the time shooting into the ballroom instead of towards the walls. If you imagine filming from this perspective, this way, um, you've got to choreograph these dancers so that they are doing the exact same move at the exact same time every single time that you shoot a scene. So these dancers all know exactly what they're doing at that moment, because obviously you shoot it again and again and again. And so it's a very difficult and complicated thing to do. You have to choreograph the whole sequence as one rather than being able to shoot a lot of different separate scenes. So that was one that I I felt like it was really tricky, was really difficult to do, but it gave the ballroom sequences a sense of movement and shape that I personally am really proud of. What it actually makes me wonder is how much of it is like marching band. Was there some big metronome in the ballroom or something like that where people knew, okay, when Daphne says this, I am hitting this 
beat and step over here? So that's a really good question. Um, the answer is all of the dancers had earwigs that were hidden from the camera, tiny little speakers in their ears, so they could hear the music. When they were dancing, it was almost completely silent in that room because they were dancing lightly. <clears throat> and we had timed out each interaction. That There's 33 different interactions in that one ballroom scene. The ballroom scene in episode one, the big ballroom scene where the Bridgertons arrive and everybody's looking at them and they promenade around the room. And Anthony is already beginning to turn people away and the Featheringtons mm. go over to the Duke. So in that sequence, there's 33 smaller little scenes that each need their own setups. They each need to have their own unique shooting. So basically, the choreographer and me had rehearsed the whole sequence with all of the acting. And the actors, the dancers had their um, tiny little speakers in their ears so they knew the rhythm of the dance how they were dancing and then we knew exactly where the actors had to be at any given moment because we'd pre-planned it how long was rehearsal how long were you involved in rehearsal we didn't have that long i think we had about we had a couple of weeks maybe but not every day we only had like a, i would say a day on that ballroom scene. But because what? <clears throat> leading up to that moment, we had had a lot of dance rehearsals. So we decided, made group decisions about what the dancers would look like. When I say group decisions, I'm including Shondaland, <clears throat> Chris, obviously. We And we were already dancing to contemporary music as well, because the fascinating <laughs> things is the music is the same rhythms now as it was back then. Sarada McDermott. Every single director had their own elements of balls and dancing. Tom Verica had the most trickiest because he had the most. Like he had five balls and he was so brilliant at being pragmatic and making sure that all of the flow was working between these different moments because of course you've got all different beats of storytelling in each one of the balls various different shapes of sizes of dancing. All of them were themed differently. I mean, you know, we had a burlesque ball. I mean, that was pretty stunning. My assistant Charlotte had to work out, you know, which audition women in cages and magicians, all sorts of things, entertainers that we had to get for that one. That was a Tom Verica. Tom Verica and I, oh my God, I think we should go to the Guinness Book of Records for Re, uh, recording the number of balls in only we did four balls and of course the brilliant Tom Bassett the first assistant I mean my word can he run a floor we did four balls three in one building and the fourth one in another building with only one day off I mean marathon you I was just it's never been I don't think it's ever been done I really think there were many firsts on Bridgerton in more ways than one the balls were the biggest challenge in blocking. Tom Berica directed episodes two and three of Bridgerton. You may know him as many things, actually. Tom is an actor, he's an activist, he's a champion of diversity, he's a director, and he's Shondaland's newest head of creative production. 
because you have 17 characters and one conversation will suddenly go into another conversation and a different set of actors. I basically have to lay out the plan of where these actors are standing and how we're going to get from one conversation to the next, whether we follow a waiter with a drink tray that leads us to the next conversation. So it, it gets very involved and very intricate. And we didn't, of course, know what music or what score we're going to use for these balls. But that particular ball is where Simon and Daphne are dancing. And it, it's probably the one that they have the most fun. And we must look like we are enjoying ourselves, as difficult as that may be. Yes, quite. In their dance, they're bouncing. He's doing a spin, which was not rehearsed. But it was really kind of this, them losing themselves in one another and part of that courtship and falling in love with one another. And, um, you know, we had different songs we'd have playing, but because that the energy of what I wanted, we, we had this library of music and I picked this current day song by Plan B that was just so fun and had this energy. And he, you even see Adjua, Adjua's like got this little bop to her when she's, you know, which is probably not period, but, but again, we wanted to sort of make that feeling of accessibility and, and a, a current and a modern element to it. So we played this music that I think everyone kind of kicked into gear hearing that. And then in post, we lay in sort of a fun classical piece. But that's what it probably felt like to them if there was a classical piece back in the time that was maybe a little bit more edgier. Um, and they probably, you know, maybe had those moments. And that's it's fun to sort of realize those moments and to, to you know, again, to put that under underneath the scene of what we actually played because the music was very different. If I may, I can honestly say that when we were on set, at the Hastings Ball in our studio. So we weren't on location. And it was the final ball when Stormzy started playing and they danced. So Stormzy's the British rap artist and uh, we danced to his track, The Crown. <laughs> I mean, that was, that absolutely, it, it personified everything that we wanted to do. And we had these 24 dancers, all of whom could have broken out at any given moment into the most fantastic, you know, lock or garage or popping. And there they were, fantastically restrained. And they're being beautifully graceful to Stormzy's very, very beautiful piece. I'm thrilled with the dance that we, we did to Stormzy. And I just knew by that point with costume, with, with set, with choreography, that we had nailed it. It revealed itself to us that the choices we had made were exciting choices. And that was a very, very beautiful moment. But I must say, when the final dance between Daphne and Simon, when they started dancing, I did burst out crying because I did it. I did it. Because it was the last dance and they danced so beautifully. But then this extraordinary thing happened. I mean, I, I, I could rain now, but it was so, so beautiful. 
So, and to be involved and to know that I was involved with it, but also to watch the movement, to watch the dancers, to watch, you know, Nicola reggae, to to watch the Queen, to watch Golda, to watch all these people. And they run when the rain comes and it leaves, and then there's this cleansing. Yes. And I actually, I knew the rain was going to happen because it's obviously in the script. And the final dance, Chris came up with the music for the final dance, which is the Max Richter and uh, the spring and of the Vivaldi. And um, I decided, because it was going to rain, that this wonderful bounce in the music, I wanted them to be like raindrops, that actually they bring the rain. They need the rain. They need the rain to move on. So we do, do a dance called a galopade, and it's a bouncing dance. And I said, I want you to think that you're raindrops hitting off the floor. And that's how I got them to realize that. And it's a very, very, I think it's a very moving moment because you kind of go, something's gonna happen, something's gonna happen, something's gonna happen, and it does, and it's the rain. And so it's elemental, you know? And then there's an extraordinary duologue between them. And yeah, and I, and I, my eyeballs rained all the way through it. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back to hear more stories from behind the scenes of Bridgerton. Bridgerton, the official podcast, is executive produced by Lauren Holman, Sandy Bailey, Holly Fry, and me, Gabrielle Collins. Chris Van Dusen is our producer. Thanks for listening. Bridgerton, the official podcast, is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your favorite shows.